Hey there, Conquerors, and welcome to the Conquering Columbus podcast. Today's episode is episode 100 of the show, and it's been an incredible journey for us up to this point. We definitely couldn't have gotten here without all of you tuning in each week, so we just wanted to take a moment to make sure you all knew how grateful we are for taking the time each week to listen to our interviews. We've got a special guest lined up for today, Mr. Pete Kite, founder of Check Free, and we really believe you're going to enjoy this episode, and most of all, we hope you learn a lot. Before we get to that interview, though, I want to ask you all for a quick favor. If you haven't already, pick up your phone and hit that subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're listening on. It really helps support our show, and it'll make sure you never miss a single episode of Conquering Columbus. We also want to take a moment to thank some of our supporters. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them is a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. Mike here again. Do you want to be a sponsor of Conquering Columbus? We are looking for some new supporters to help keep the show going in 2018. To inquire about how you can help support the podcast, please send an email to mike at conqueringcolumbus.com. All right, Conquerors, let's get the show on the road. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, you know, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus. Hey there, Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Conquering Columbus. Our guest today is Mr. Pete Kite, and Pete is the founder of Check Free, which started as an online payment company and grew into the largest online banking, payment processing, and business analytic company in the world before selling to Fiserv for $4.4 billion in 2007. And Pete started Check Free from his grandmother's basement in 1981. And Check Free is one of the companies that helped put Columbus on the map when it comes to business and entrepreneurship. We're really excited and honored to have him here on the show today. Welcome to Conquering Columbus, Pete. Thanks, guys. Good to be here. And so what's it? Let's start with... Hey, how was your day so far? I know you came from a little warmer weather. Yeah, the, here in Columbus. Just uh, spent had a little bit of work this morning, and then spent the better part of the day flying over here from Phoenix. So the day's been uh, okay, right until the pilot turned around and 
told us it was 36 degrees, you know, right before we landed, but it was, it was too late by then, right? So here we go. It's a, it's a classic Columbus April day when, you know, your, your golf course sends you an email telling you at the beginning of the month that spring's here and the golf course is going to open. And if you've been in Columbus very long, you just look at that and say, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I think it's the only state you're not really safe until around June. And then, you know, consistently yeah. you're going to, you're going to get some decent weather. But I think the, the first place we want to kick off is, um, you know, a lot of people can hear your story in different places, but maybe a high level overview of your childhood, your upbringing, and then your path towards, you know, that 1981 point of starting Check Free. Sure. So I, I grew up uh, here in town in Worthington. I was the second to last of five kids. Um, pretty classic uh, uh, upbringing in the suburbs of Columbus. You know, I had a great family, had a great time growing up. Uh, I think, you know, probably the things that stand out that, you know, that might be of interest relative to what we're talking about here is um, you, you, you look at my background and, and how I've uh, sort of worked and developed, and it's it fits within that classic. I'm second to last in a pretty big family, and so I learned to try harder. You know, I, you know, I, I live with mostly hand-me-downs, and that was fine with me. It was you know, I didn't I didn't know any better, um, but it did teach me along the way that you know I was going to have to fight for what I got, and you know, you, you tend to as as the second to last be the one that that uh, usually tries harder. I'd I'd say that was pretty consistent with sort of my upbringing. We were a family that had two older boys, uh, a sister right in the middle, and then two younger boys. So we had a crowded childhood, and my sister had an uncrowded childhood because the four of us packed in one bedroom, and she had her own bedroom. I'm still not sure that I ag agree with that, but nobody asked my opinion back then. So it was, you know, one of the things about my childhood that I, you know, that also fits the that you got to try harder is we were a, a household of kids that uh, just we just all grew up loving sports. Uh, my, my sister didn't particularly care about you know being a sports person, but the, the boys were all out about sports, and I was uh, acutely aware that as I went through high school. My oldest brother was on the state championship cross country team. You know his junior year. My uh, next oldest brother well, won the state championship in uh, low hurdles his junior year and won the national championship in intermediate hurdles his senior year. And my senior year, I was the state runner-up in the pentathlon, which means in my household, I was the first boy to not win a state championship. Uh, and I was aware of that, you know, and you, in, in my world, you know, finishing second in the pentathlon, you know, meant that I didn't get the state championship. So it meant you had to try harder. And it, that, that kind of upbringing just stays with you. And then, you know, we don't want to fast forward too much. If we miss too many spots in between this, you can go ahead and stop us and take us back. But I want to talk about 1981, starting a business out of your grandmother's basement. Now, today, you'll gain 10,000 Instagram followers for a story like that. It's super cool. Back then, you know, it might not have been the coolest thing to do, and people might actually look down upon someone who's doing something like that. Not to mention that you had these um, setbacks personally earlier in your childhood where you took second and certain things. Could, so that I'm interested, was there something that you felt almost like you had to prove or were you just on a journey to create something that meant meaning, meaningful to you? Or uh, Yeah, I didn't feel like I had to prove anything to anyone else. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, but by, without question, the strongest 
thing that has always driven me was a fear of not doing my best. Uh, it was all about me. It had nothing to do with proving it to anyone else. My dad and I didn't really get along very well, so you know, I wasn't really trying to prove anything to him. My mom and I got along so well, she thought I was the greatest thing in the world and I didn't have anything to prove to her. It was just me. And uh, I, I, you know, also part of my background is uh, I'm, a, I'm a classic, you know, absolute classic example of ADD. Uh, we didn't know uh, that it was to call it ADD back then, um, but I was not a very good student. Um, but, but I knew uh, that I was pretty smart. Um, and I just, I didn't really feel all the way through elementary and high school, I didn't feel you know, any real reason to try to prove anything to anybody else. My job was just to get out, you know, and once I got out on my own, you know, I, I loved college, I loved being on my own, I got to pick my own classes, which meant, you know, I couldn't complain anymore about being bored, you know, I got to focus on my own things. And th that led to the, the c clear realization, you know, in my mind that I wanted to run my own company. You know, back then, as you pointed out, which is correct, you know, entrepreneurship wasn't a big thing back then. In fact, you know, I'd say the vast majority of people who I knew, whether they were friends of my father's or the family or, you know, you know older people that I knew back then, successful people, you know, they, they wondered why I didn't go try to work for someone. Uh, and, um, you know, I didn't really have an answer for them. It wasn't, you know, that I, I believed there was a... a a greater you know, end in being an entrepreneur, to me it was an absolute. I knew I wasn't gonna work well inside a big company where you know, my restlessness was going to be you know, channeled inside the political bureaucracy of some larger company. If you, if you run your own company, you get the opportunity to do exactly what I wanted to do, which is you, you tell me what it is I have to do and I will work absolutely as hard as necessary to uh, become as successful as I can be. And when you run your own company, you get the chance to do that. You also have the obligation to do that. And I'm sure you'll ask a lot of questions about the challenges that come up along the way that, that comes part and parcel with the opportunity to pursue things on your own and to work as hard as you can to pursue things on your own in your own way that comes with you know, all of the challenges that they get thrown in, you know, at you along the way when you start your own company, especially if you start one in a place where the market you're planning on building doesn't exist yet. Um, but for me, the, 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 it, it wasn't a, an intellectual uh, development that, you know, I, I conceived entrepreneurship is what I wanted to, to pursue. It was really an emotional need of I need to run my own company. It's what I want to do. The biggest fear I have in my life is that I won't be allowed to work as hard as I want to work to do as well as I can do. I didn't have any fear of failure. I had an absolute terror of not getting the chance to work as hard as I believed I was willing to work. And, and, and to jump in there, I wanted to talk about, uh, you mentioned, you know, extreme drive to want to do the best you could possibly do and to work that hard now is that something you felt came naturally to you or is that something you built up and then for our listeners out there who might want to build that type of an attitude how can they go about doing that yeah i, I, I it certainly wasn't built it just you know came within me my you know my family expressed 
uh, surprise because they didn't they didn't see that when we were uh, growing up at home. But as as I said, when when, when I was at home and I was in uh, school, in in elementary school and high school, where you're told where you have to go, you're told what you have to take. You're you know you're you're cons really controlled by a, a system. That's a really bad match for ADD. Uh, and it's a really bad match for a highly independent person like me. So I really just, the only way I knew how to survive was just to wait it out. And uh, I, I'd say the few times that I, that I lost my patience, you know, I, I got in some trouble. You know, I, uh, somewhere in the, in the legal records in Delaware County, there's a, a record of uh, Peter Knight, you know, getting caught sliding down O'Shaughnessy Dam, uh, you know, in the springtime. I, I can remember being there and starting to correct the clerk when my mother was with me when they read off Peter Knight right before we got sentenced to $25 and, and uh, you know, had to listen to the, to the judge talk about city slickers. And I, I just started opening my mouth to correct the spelling when my mom kicked me under the table. And, you know, I, I didn't really know my mom was that clever, but yeah, you know, she figured out. So somewhere, at some point, some poor kid named Knight's gonna get stopped in Delaware. And well, we paid the fine, so there's no, he won't get in trouble. But it's a, um, you know, it's a pretty classic thing of, of uh, uh, both uh, you know, ADD and dyslexia, where you know, people tend to learn to be very independent. Um, because you're not really fitting in that well with uh, with the existing system as it works. My, my you know, I, I knew I didn't fit in, but I, I didn't ever really doubt that I was smart enough to do what it is I wanted to do. But boy, I'll tell you, it was, you know, it, it was not easy. And and there there isn't anybody happier, you know, in the world having graduated from high school and getting gone than I was. What it wasn't getting gone from Columbus. It was just getting gone from from being in a you know, school system where they told you what to do. And you mentioned challenges. I think, you know, that's the main thing that we want to cover as we work through your story. But I think at the beginning, the, the first challenge is how did you identify the business problem that needed to be solved? And then being somebody who had ADD, putting, having no direction, nobody telling you exactly what to do, but coming up with what you had to do on your own, what does that kind of granularity look like to you when you're first creating the business? Yeah, so this is, uh, again, you know, I, I, I'd love to tell you a... Uh, you know, how I intellectually uh, sort of analyzed this process and came up with a, you know, a real process discipline for how I developed it. And I could make that up, but it wouldn't be the truth. Uh, you know, like most entrepreneurs, uh, the, the, the process was really driven more by my personality and, the, and the, the drive to look for something, you know, that, you know, I really felt a passion about. And so I, uh, I, I went to college. I... I was listed as majoring in philosophy, but I really major, majored in the decathlon, you know, which is sort of a classic ADD uh, undertaking, isn't it? Um, but, but loved the whole experience, loved uh, track and field, decathlon, the whole, uh, the, the, the culture of, of being rewarded for hard work, the, the milieu in California at the time, you know, seeing how far I could go. You know, ultimately, in my junior year, I, I pulled my hamstring for a third time to the point where it ruptured and, and it was pretty clear I wasn't gonna go any further than, than that, but I'd had, a, I'd had a great run and it was time to go to channel this energy into something else. And uh, again, I, I knew that it, it had to be something where I could, 
I could work for myself, build a business myself. I didn't necessarily think of it as an entrepreneur as, as much as I, I needed to do something where I had the opportunity to build uh, on my own. And I had an opportunity uh, that just came up uh, with, through my connection in sports uh, to, to take over the general managership of a group of fitness facilities in, uh, in Texas. And it was just one of those, I was in the right place, the right time, following a, a big uh, track meet. And, you know, I, I met the guy who owned him who just lost his general manager. And, and he was sort of impressed with the, what we had talked about that evening. And next thing I know, I'm, I'm flying to Houston to take a look at the facilities. And he makes me the offer, not just to, originally it was to work there. And he makes me the offer to run the place. And I thought, wow, this is, you know, it, it combines a number of things. I, I get to sort of run my own show. It's involved in athletics, and it was a it was a great opportunity. But from there, that's when I looked at the business. And and again, one of my pet views on entrepreneurship is, you know, you guys have read before. It's usually not the the pure straight A uh, student who uh, is the entrepreneur. It's usually the B student who's the entrepreneur. The A student's too smart uh, and can see too much and knows too much about the problems that the B student didn't really see. You can't be a D student because you got to be smart enough to figure out how to deal with those problems along the way. But the B student's the one that, that, for whatever reason, either didn't stop, like me, to really look at the problems because I just figured I could outwork any problem that came up. Um, and and the, this is a pretty classic situation. I'm running these health clubs. I can't figure out you know, why they sell annual memberships where they only collect money once a year. Uh, and the only way to do that is you know, at the end of a year, you had to threaten to kick your customer out unless they pay you a big lump sum again. And they called it renewing. I looked at it as you're kicking your own customers out unless they pay you again. What company, you know, what business kicks its own customers out? It doesn't make any sense. You know, their view was, the traditional view was, well, that's how you get paid again. I just said, you know, I kept looking at, at businesses where, you know, you, the business was paid every month just as a part of the monthly household budget cycle. It's the way I thought of it and thought, well, that's what a health club needs to be. And they laughed and said, yeah, well, if you, if you try to bill somebody for a health club, it's the only bill that's going to get paid after the cable company and the dentist, which was true. And I knew you couldn't just send the bills. But being a, a B student entrepreneur, I just kept saying there's got to be a way, there's got to be a way. And a, and a big part of entrepreneurship, as you guys well know, is the doggedness just not to accept no and to say there's got to be a way. And I, I just, I'm sure I wasn't the most popular conversationist because uh, in the clubs I talked to people about, you know, the business and the challenges and this is what I'm looking for until one day these three young insurance executives were working out. I was talking to them. I talked about the problem of, of wanting to, to, to be in a monthly cycle but you can't bill. And they laughed and said, so yeah, that sounds just like the problem we had with our life insurance, you know, premiums until we figured out you know, how to convince the Federal Reserve to let us use the ACH to just have the, the uh, annual life insurance premium broken down into a monthly payment, and it's paid automatically through the ACH, just like Social Security is direct deposited. Well, I mean, I, I looked at them, and I said, that's it. And they laughed and said, no, 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 you, know, you wouldn't be allowed to use that system. And I, you know, again, being ignorant, just you know, went out to a, a series of local banks, one banker, finally, you know, gave me enough attention to, to hand me a booklet, you know, called Reg E and said, here, you know, take a look at it. I don't think you can do it, but, you know, if you can find a way to do it, here's, here's what you'd have to do in order to work with us. 
I read the whole reggae regulation. I read the background materials behind it. And I couldn't find anything in it that said I couldn't do it. Now, you know, the bankers, you know, all came, you know, when I, when I went back to them and said, this doesn't say I can't do this. They said, well, show me where it says you can. And there was the big difference. And I said, no, no, no. It doesn't say I can't, you know. This is America. If it doesn't say you can't, you're allowed to try. And I finally got one banker to say, you know, I'll be darned if you're right. It doesn't say you can't do this as a, as a non-bank. Um, so if, if you present us the file and, and you know, everything is, is correct, we'll be the bank that runs the file into the Fed's night window. And, you know, you can, you can try to collect uh, monthly membership fees for your health club. I don't think people will pay that way, whatever. And, and then it was just a couple of small things, again, that, you know, it, it, this, this sounds small when you talk about it, but check-free wouldn't have existed um, if we hadn't figured out. We, we took the time to look at the Reg E authorization form, which you have to sign that, you know, as a part of the regulation, so the bank is allowed to move money automatically from your account. And it's a really nasty form that that's, uses words like, you know, electronically debit, you know, th things that consumers don't want to read. Consumer doesn't want to see the, the two words electronic debit and, and have to deal with it at all. So it was a real problem because this, this authorization form, and we tried it a couple times with a couple people and they were like, wow, no, you know, I'd rather just pay this one, you know, fee, and, but that's not gonna work. We went back to, I went back to the book, read Reg E again, and all of a sudden I, I noticed that Reg E says that the consumer's bank is the one that's responsible for having this authorization form. I'm not a bank. So I thought, well, wait a minute, that act actually doesn't apply to me. And, and what it said was, on the assumption that that authorization form was already in place by the bank, all I had to have was a form that said, that, that notified the person that this payment was going to be made automatically on a certain date, and that they had the right to stop that uh, automatic payment anytime they wanted by simply notifying the bank in writing. So I went from having a paragraph, you know, that had all this legalese language in it, to having two sentences, that were about 10 words long, and that became my authorization form. And we really learned, you know, selling people face-to-face -face in the health club, what worked and, and, and what didn't work as well. And we really honed a, a really strong sense of this is how to present electronic payment to a consumer. And if you do it the right way, it works. And, um, and they, they were not only willing to do it, they liked it. And so that, you know, I literally had the aha moment when I sat back in my chair and I said, you know, the health club business is interesting for an, you know, athlete, you know, guy with an uh, athletics in his background, but it isn't a great business. This, I, I literally sat back in my chair, you know, one night in, in the health club and said, this is what I could really get excited about. As, as effective as this is for the health club, in six months after we implemented this, um, you know, we had changed the membership from $250 a year to uh, $50 down and $12.95 a month. Um, and we moved the, the, the payment, after trying it a couple of times, we moved the payment to being collected on the fifth day of, of the month. The accountant wanted us to collect on the first. We tried that and figured out that people didn't have their paychecks deposited by then. By the fifth, they had their paychecks deposited, so that was comfortable. $19 just disappears in the monthly uh, household cycle. And so you know, what happened was by the sixth month that we'd implemented this at the, at the small chain of health clubs, we were profitable on the fifth day of the month just from the draft um, because we'd lowered the, the 
effective entry price to the health clubs so low that we were stealing everybody else's uh, business. But the, the monthly fee just disappeared and people didn't even notice it. In fact, it had a sort of a reverse effect in that even if people didn't work out um, and, they, and they noticed the, the payment noted in their bank statement, instead of quitting, you know, because that's an admission. Not only have I not been working out, I'm not gonna work out, so I'm gonna quit. And they don't really wanna admit that, so they let it go. And it literally changed the health club industry. And uh, uh, so I, I packed up everything I had and in the back of my uh, car, I drove to Columbus where I had already talked to my grandmother. We had lost my grandfather a couple years earlier. She was living alone and she uh, offered to let me live and work in the basement at he had an old workbench down in the basement out in the, the uh, northern edge of uh, Worthington. And uh, so you know what happens if you start a business out in, in uh, California as a, as a tech guy, you borrow against your credit cards and, and rent a garage. It's too cold to start a business in Columbus in a garage. And if you're, if you're born and raised in the Midwest, you don't have a credit card, you know, you know if you don't have any money. And so... Um, instead of taking advances on my credit card, I just didn't spend any money. You know, I lived for free in, in the basement. I worked for free and had no rent. And uh, I, I, I met a guy that, that my father knew who owned a number of apartment complexes in, in town, was an apartment developer. And he had just bought this tabletop computer. And he had been talking about it at the athletic club. My father heard him, mentioned it to me. I called the guy up, went in, made a pitch to him that said, I'll put your apartments on automatic rent collection, so you don't have to worry about collecting rent anymore. And you know, only thing you got to do is after six o'clock, when your office is closed, leave me the key to just the room that the tabletop computer is in. And if I can use your computer at night, which costs you nothing, I'll run the the uh, uh, rent collection for you. Um, and well, let's see if this is a real business. And then I, I, I promised him if it worked, he'd get equity in the business. And that's how we got started. And then when did the first employees jump on board with you? And, and in those early days, you know, what was your life like from morning till night? Were you just going nonstop? You mentioned your work ethic was one of the biggest things that separated you um, throughout your entire life up till that point. Did you continue to leverage that and just put in amazing amount of hours? Did you spend time to sit back and enjoy time with people in Columbus? Or, you know, what did that look like? Yeah, no, there was, there was the word enjoy didn't, didn't exist for a couple of years. Now, I was... You know, I only, for the first two years, I only had access to a computer at night. Uh, I'm not a programmer, so I, I found a guy through a, you know, some other people that I knew from high school. I found a guy who was an absolute coding genius, very different fellow, you know, as they often are, um, but li literally was a genius, and he just loved coding, you know, and so for, for not very much money, but for the love of the, the challenge of, of seeing if he could do this, you know, I, I, I hired him. He showed up at 6 o'clock at night. Uh, he smoked, which was a huge problem for me because I've always been an athlete, never liked smoking. But, you know, this is, this is how the guy stayed awake. He had a day job. He, you know, I, he had to stay awake. He, he smoked a cigarette in one hand. He had diet Pepsi that he would crack uh, caffeine pills and drop, you know, each half, you know, in the, in the Pepsi. And he, he'd drink the Pepsi, smoke, and... He could code as fast as he could type. Larry Barger was the guy's name. He was, a, he was an amazing guy. Actually, a, a different but a very good guy. Um, 
And, uh, and so I sat with him at night, and we literally wrote the code that was the first check-free system. During the day, I went door-to-door -door at these apartment complexes uh, talking to people about why you know, we wanted them to allow the bank to pay their rent. And again, uh, it was really painful work. I mean, that is not fun, going door-to-door -door at apartments, you know, trying to convince people to do something they'd never heard of before when it has to do with money. Um, um, and, uh, but looking back, it was, a, you know, it was a tremendous opportunity for me to really learn how to communicate about what we did and what worked and didn't work with, with consumers. It was really an extension of, you know, from the health club where it was you know, tough enough, but now talking to apartment renters who, by and large, you know, don't really trust their landlord. That's not something you can't say, look, you know, trust us, you know, it's going to work. That doesn't, you know, when you're representing a landlord, that's not, that's not the approach. But we, you know, we developed a way to explain it. We, you know, what we really did was, was focus on the fact the bank would make the payment for them. The fact that it was an electronic debit was really kind of irrelevant. And we reinforced that it would be recorded on the bank statement. We showed them, you know, sample bank statements, how it worked. We just, we learned a lot about how to talk to consumers about electronic banking before anyone even knew banking could be electronic. And it was a, in the end, like a lot of times in these kinds of hardships, it turned out to be a real gift you know, that we were forced, that I was forced to do that. I'm not a real open, you know, social kind of guy. I'm not going to go knock on doors and talk to people if I don't absolutely have to. Uh, it was a, you know, it turned out to be a tremendous gift. But it was, uh, and then on the weekends uh, when, we'd, when we'd get the apartment signed up um, and we'd have enough of the code done, I would enter the, 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 uh, uh, bank account information and the, con the consumer information, and and then um, yeah, I do all the data entry, the data cleaning, um, and then you know, it was it was sort of I, I'd sure it was six to nine months before I took a weekend afternoon off. It was just, but it was it wasn't you know at, at the time it didn't feel like a great burden to me. It was this was what I wanted to do in life and. I needed to get it off the ground, and to get it off the ground, I would do whatever it took, you know, whatever amount of work it took. If, if it meant working seven days, I didn't want to work seven days a week for the rest of my life, but if you tell me i got to work seven days a week, you know, 20 hours a day for an, a certain period of time, you know, well, that's the finish line. Here's where I am. I'll get to the finish line. Okay. That's what we did. And were your, were your customers the apartment complexes or the individuals within them at that The, the apartment complexes. Okay. You know, and so the original business, we didn't have the, con and I went from there back to apartments. With, and it turned out the apartment landlords are too hard to sell. You know, I mean, by and large, the reason someone invests in real estate is because they don't want things to change. You know, it's tried, it's true, not much change. It's brick and mortar. They think of it as brick and mortar investing. So you... You go to talk to them about anything innovative, and it's like, look, I invested in brick and mortar because I didn't really want to think. And so that, that's, not a, that's not an easy sale. I went back to the health clubs because I knew how, uh, you know, I knew that industry, I knew how to speak to them. And uh, it's a classic deal where I, I went to the, the first annual, it was called URSA, International Racket Sports and, uh, Association. And, uh, it was, the, it was the first big association meeting for health clubs in the country. And uh, part of my deal was I talked to the guy who was, who was uh, the head of, of URSA and uh, told him I wanted to go to the show, uh, told him what it is I did. And he said, look, we're looking for innovative you know, you know, 
topics to, to discuss. So if you'd agree to speak, you know, I'll agree to let you come into the show. And um, so I said, look, I'll, I'll do that deal if as part of, you know, me speaking and, and getting into the show, you give me a, a mailing list at the end of it. He said, okay, we'll do that. So I went out, you know, I made a presentation. Nobody really listened because they're all out there looking at the newest equipment and, you know, at the models that are working out on the equipment and all that kind of stuff. And uh, nothing really happened. But I, uh, as I'm walking around, and, and they, at the end of my speech, the guy hands me the mailing list. Well, it turns out it's just a mailing list of the health clubs, no names on it, just the health club, no personal names. They go, well, that's not very, yeah, that's not a great way to do a mailing. I, this was in Vegas. I grabbed a cab and I, I went to the nearest radio shack, bought one of these little micro recorders, came back. I walked around the show and I got, I'm, I'm pretty sure, you know, that, that more than a couple of times, you know, uh, people went to the, to the uh, security people and asked them to keep an eye on me. Because I walked around this show and I had this little recorder and as I walked past people and I saw their name tags, I would, I would speak into the recorder and I'd speak the name of the health club and that person's individual name. So that when I came back to Columbus, went back into the basement, sat down, I had their mailing list and I'd listen to the, the tape and it, you know, it would say uh, Portland Sports and Racket and I'd go to the list and I'd find Portland Sports and Racket and it would say Joe Smith and I could write down Joe Smith. So when I ultimately wrote up the mailing list that I mailed this, here's what Check Creek could do for you, it was addressed to Joe Smith, not just the Portland Racket Cup. So I do all that, and uh, I mailed, mailed off all these, this pretty simple little uh, explanation of what Check Free did, how it worked, an example of what it did for, for our clubs that I, that I ran, and then it had a little return card you know, uh, that you just zip off and say, yes, you know, give me a call. I'd like to know more about it. I'm working in this basement um, on a Saturday, and the front door uh, upstairs is right above where I'm working, and there's, there's a mail slot in the middle of the door, you know, that little brass old-time thing that would open up. And, the, and I'm working in there, and as I'm working, uh, doing data entry on the 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 computer, I hear this thunk on the floor. And I thought, what the heck is this? It's Saturday, you know, no, nobody's around. I didn't think, I went upstairs, you know, I, I turned around the corner, looked down the hallway, and as soon as I saw it, the, the thunk had been, there were so many of these little uh, cards that had, that had come back right away that the postman had put a rubber band around them so that when he put them through the door, they hit the ground with a thunk. And to this day, I can still tell you what that thunk sounded like because I didn't just hear it with my ears, man. I, I, I heard that with my whole body. And that was, you know, when I saw that stack, I thought, I've got a business. It's a pretty incredible story. I mean, talk about, you mentioned earlier not taking no for an answer. And, you know, some most people get that mailing list and go, well, you know, I guess I'll just have to send them a letter to the, to the business without a name. But go out and grab Radio Shack Radio, I mean, it's ingenious, but uh, what I want to talk about is uh, from there, you know, you get that thunk, and you get those uh, those letters, let's talk about kind of the first few years um, up until, you know, maybe the middle point of Check Free. How did your role change as that process evolved, and, you know, what did you like and what did you dislike about those changes? Uh, so, the, you know, I, I had a bit of a different experience in, you know, as 
we had a great run there for a couple of years when we just we were just we just grew like crazy because we put you know I don't know what our what our uh, market share was. No one else, of course, did it, but it was so we didn't have any competitors at that time. Although they they came out of the woodwork eventually, but the you know I mean we the, the check free changed the way the health club industry worked. It used to be this super high pressure sales business, and the health club just sort of sat in the back and people worked out themselves, you know, or, or a scantily clad woman came by, you know, and, you know, it was, you know, it was European spa kind of, it was, it was not, not a pretty industry. And what Check Free did is it removed the need for all this high pressure sales. And what it did was it put the, the health club in a position where if you just didn't give your customers a reason, a real strong reason to want to quit, they'd stay with you. And so all of a sudden, instead of you know slick back hair, uh, you know, uh, New York sales guys out on the floor, you had people who were figuring out, hey, if I help people work out, you know, they're going to stay, and I, I won't give them a reason to leave. And it changed the way the health club industry worked. That was a great run, but then you look up and say that you know what else can we do? This technology is really, you know, my belief when I first started, when I first heard those guys those insurance guys to tell me how it worked. And I went back and I looked at it, looked at it, and again, I wish I could tell you I'd, I'd done these deep analytics, but what happened was it was, a, it was a pure epiphany of here's paper and here's electronic, electronic's gonna win. I mean, that's just, that's simple. But there was no deep argument, there was no, you know, go to an analysis, it was obvious. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I didn't have the timing right, but I, it was certainly clear to me Look, as, as if we make this easier to use, it's going to beat paper every time. It, you know, it turned out to take longer than I thought, but it, you know, the, the original basic thesis was correct. So what I did was, you know, I, I looked at the health club industry and thought, this is great, but this is just one niche. I tried a lot of other industries, and I did, you know, it, it just took a long time to sell change uh, to corporate America. One guy that I ran into I got on a plane, you know, and uh, uh, in Columbus I was walking um, through first class back to the back of the plane where, you know, startup entrepreneurs sit. And the guy that I was with said, hey, have you ever met this guy? Um, you might have seen him somewhere in town. His name's Jeff Wilkins, and he was the CEO of CompuServe. And I said, no. He said, yeah, you guys are both technology guys. You know, you should meet each other. I introduced myself and just said real quickly what it was I was working on. And he looked up and said, you know, the biggest problem we have at CompuServe is figuring out how to get paid. Why don't you give me a call when you get back into town? Long story short, uh, we put CompuServe on check free. And we'd had a little, little bit of this before. But this was the first time, of course, we're talking to people who are pioneers and going online in their computer. And all of a sudden, sudden, we started getting notices from these CompuServe customers that said, hey, CompuServe payment system works great. Um, tell me you know, how I plug in the rest of my bills. And we laughed and said, yeah, you know, gosh, you don't really understand you know, how this works. Of course, this is a classic situation of, you know, I'm not going to tell you how many months went by before it finally dawned on me, wait a minute, who's laughing? You know, uh, who is this joke on? What, what are we not listening to here? And so, you know, I, I went in, I did go into a deep analysis of the whole online banking market, you know, and 
uh, internet banking, online banking. The internet you know, wasn't really formed yet. It was still guys like Jeff that were, you know, it, it had gotten beyond uh, bulletin boards, but, but CompuServe was, you know, it is arguably, the, in, in, in my opinion, you know, DARPA gets the credit for, for really inventing it, but Jeff is the one who was first really in the market with it, and it was DARPA looking at CompuServe and ultimately putting the two together that was the birth of the internet. Um, and as, as that was taking place, you know, it, it became pretty clear to us, or, or in my analysis, hey, this um, paper, electronics, electro electronic is gonna win. We ultimately, you know, switched to the word digital, but at, at that time it was, you know, it was really just forming. And it was a, I will admit, it was an early bet, but before the internet existed, you know, while it was still, you know, CompuServe and, and, a, and a company called Quantum uh, Computer, which ultimately became, renamed itself AOL, uh, who we also put on, uh, we actually, uh, uh, you know, through our own, was partial analysis and then ultimately our gut feel, I just believed digital was gonna win. And so we went ahead and built a bill payment system uh, that was uh, essentially quick and light, um, that it wasn't online um, because you, 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 you know, online didn't work that well. So it was an offline check register, uh, bill payment register that you know, as you directed it, each time you sat down and, and decided to pay your bills, as you directed it, what, you know, when you had directed the bills that you wanted to have paid, you hit enter. It auto-dialed CompuServe, it, it operated in a burst mode, and, and electronic bill payment was born. We had looked at uh, banks who had tried it before. Bank One here in Columbus was one of the first to try it in a joint venture with uh, the local cable company that was owned by Warner Amex. Um, and, it, uh, and it didn't work. Uh, our analysis of all of the bank uh, attempts, there were a half dozen of them at the time, and why they weren't working was that the banks had designed them to work the way the banks wanted consumers to work. Um, and we didn't have that overhead. You know, all we cared about was uh, how does the consumer want to do this? And we focused 100% on let's, let's design it for the consumer. And we were off and running. We did, you know, uh, bet the company on that deal. And the, the original apartment guy who, who gave me access to the computer and then ultimately, you know, got a big chunk of the, the equity for, you know, essentially, even though he didn't put real money in, he essentially created the, the, the resource infrastructure for us to be able to get off the ground. You know, he ultimately didn't like the risk of going, of, of betting the company uh, again and, and didn't want in uh, as, as that started to take off. And so one of the really big, you know, early challenges we had at a, you know, at a meaningful sort of political level was uh, we had to part ways with him. I had to find somebody to buy him out because I went to the banks and, and uh, the banks either said no or they said, hey, instead of us lending you the money to buy him out, we'll buy him out and we'll become your partner. And I didn't want a bank as a partner. And so you know, we, we ultimately brought in some venture capitalists to, to buy him out um, and uh, that, that really was the, the first time that we uh, had anybody from the outside into the company. You mentioned a couple things there that, you know, could be marked as milestones, but I'm interested to hear, I think sometimes there's a perceived notion that when you get over to the, the profitability phase or the cash flow positive phase in a company, um, the tough milestones are kind of over. But I think what we're realizing here specifically at FMX and 
thankful to have Jeff as our CEO here and hear his stories reflecting back on things. The problems will continue to come and there's just different different evolutions that you have to deal with. So for you looking back on those days, um, what are the most significant milestones that kind of stick out and in terms of that, like more of the difficult challenges ones and how did you overcome those? Yeah, I can give you a couple, but I can definitely, and so, you know, there's there's two things I think that, uh, that limit uh, an entrepreneur um, you know, in a position where they could have been a lot bigger, the ones that to look out for. One is you hire people early on. You know, oftentimes you hire friends, um, things like that. You do what you got to do. You build the company. You're, you're having some success, you know. Uh, um, but the, the chances that all the people that you hire in the beginning are going to grow uh, at a speed uh, fast enough and aligned well enough that they're going to fit the company all along the way, those chances are zero. Which means, you know, you have to make a choice um, because, you know, you, you can decide, look, these, you know, I believe in loyalty. I believe in, you know, in, in, in staying with the people who were there when I needed them. And that's, that's one way of, uh, of approaching it. And if you haven't brought in other people's money and made other promises, you, you have that right to, to take that approach. But you need to understand you've just limited how far your company is going to go. Or you have to take the approach um, that your responsibility is to everyone, not just to that individual who's now falling behind. Uh, and you have to be willing. And I, you know, I can tell you this is really, really tough. But if, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you have a, a company that's capable of continuing to grow and one of your early stars, whether it's your best friend you know, or not, if, if they can't keep up, your job as a leader is to take them out and replace them with someone who can to, uh, fit in that position and continue to grow the company. So that's, you know, that, that's one, you know, clear limitation. Another is, you know, like us, we had success in the, the health club industry. You know, I, I, my original partner in the business, that was great for him and that was all he wanted to do. You know, we but believed that we could do significantly bigger, uh, better than that. Um, we, we saw the opportunity in online banking, and um, we made the decision that, that I made the decision. I was willing to bet the company again. I was willing to risk it all because there was that much bigger opportunity out there to continue to extend into adjacent markets, you know, ultimately adjacent market that was much bigger, you know, than the original primary market. Um, and, you know, by my count, uh, there were seven different times in CheckFree's evolution where we hit a position where either there was a plateau that we had to do something different to get through or there was an extended opportunity and we had to bet the company uh, again if we wanted to pursue that extended opportunity. And we, we did that seven different times uh, where we, we bet it all. And there was definitely times when I looked up and I thought, man, you know, you know when I went through that entrepreneur's manual, I, I, I don't know when I missed that chapter that said you have to keep taking these risks and betting the the, the ranch all over again, and uh, um, but that's the reality of it. Why do you think that you took the risk? Were you were you not scared to lose it all, or was there a fear there, or was it just you know this is what I'm here to do, and I'm going to keep following? My following path? biggest fear was that I would ever look back and say I could have worked harder and done more. That's the only thing I ever feared in my life. And so you know, for me, when I looked at it, I thought, how can I not try to do this? Um, and e even ultimately when it became time to sell, you know, and, and I put that back and I said, what will you think when you look back 
and and you know I had had lots of offers along the way, but it wasn't until I saw the global financial crisis coming, I saw how central the banks were in the middle of it, and how far they had overbet, and you know it was the only time I you know the, the one time I ultimately looked up and said, "Now nah, I'm I'm really confident I don't want to go through this mess, and it's it's time to try something else." And uh, that's a rabbit hole I could go down for hours, so I won't even I won't even get into it. But uh, wanted to you know you mentioned that that's the time that's you know when you decided to uh, you know head a different direction. Can you talk us a little bit about that process of you know selling the company to Fiserv and moving on to something else? Where did you go from there? Yeah, and so we had a look. We had a front row seat at. The buildup to that, you know, we in order to to the, the banks were and still are, you know, but but at that time they were they were extremely concerned about the internet and, and how big a disruptor it could be. You know, disintermediation was, you know, I, I thought that was actually my middle name because you know every time the American banker wrote about check free, they you know they referred to disintermediation, disintermediation and me in the same sentence. So I was very aware of of how concerned the banks were. Ultimately, what that meant was, you know, I had to meet with them, you know, face-to-face, -face personally. You had to assuage their worst fears. Our job, our, you know, mission was to give the banks the ability to turn the internet in their favor. You know, we, 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 one of the times I bet the company was when we first, you know, went into online bill pay, uh, we tried to do it with the banks and, uh, uh, you know, I, I pitched 250 banks and I got 250, you know, not just no's, but hell no's. So we launched CheckFree as a non-bank standalone bill pay business. We, we launched our own software. We integrated with Intuit's Quicken, Microsoft Money, and a, and a product called Dollars and Cents. We signed up a couple hundred thousand, you know, consumers, pretty straightforward. It was a, it was a, it was a big bet and we spent a lot of money uh, doing it, but, you know, in the end, it brought the banks right back to the table. And we, we loved the idea of having our own consumer name, of, of sort of being the first PayPal before, you know, that's, that's the path that we, we could have stayed on. Um, but our, you know, we, we clearly uh, understood that consumers preferred uh, to trust their bank. Uh, mm -hmm. And it was a much harder, we, we, the market was much bigger than the couple hundred thousand that we had signed up if we could get the bank to make the presentation to them in within their brand, as opposed to trying to get them to trust a, a non-bank, it's really only today. You know, I think that Amazon's the first to believe that that, that they've established enough trust that, that they think that they could take a brand and actually uh, and actually breach that 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 former impenetrable barrier. But in our case, you know, what our whole goal was, we went in, we we signed up enough consumers that the next time we met with a bank. Instead of just pitching them, you know, I, I could run a query and I could show them a list of all the consumers that banked at their bank that were paying bills online with me, um, as opposed to being online with their, you know, uh, sort of blue screen, uh, uh, black type uh, online banking uh, product, which is usually really terrible, always was terrible. And we literally used that as a lever to bring the banks uh, in to then sign us up. Uh, to sign up with us, and ultimately we reached a point where the biggest banks, you know, I met with them at a Mastercard conference, and they, they called me on it on the spot and said, 
you know, we will not sign up with you if we're going to compete against you in the marketplace and you're still this disintermediation threat. And I said, what if I agree to pull um, my consumer marketing and only go to market through you? And every one of them said, if you do that, we'll sign up with you. And I pulled our brand. And uh, we didn't become PayPal, but we went public at a much higher valuation than PayPal ultimately did. Um, and that was a, you know, but again, that's just the kind of situation where you look and it's a, there's a lot of analysis that goes into it, you know, but at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's the reason why, you know, the CEO has the, you know, has that job is it's, it's your job to make that call and to say, I, you know, here are the reasons why, but ultimately you, you try to build as much analytic thinking is, you know, as you can, you try really hard. Uh, really hard to understand what your emotional biases are and make sure you're guarding against because it's uh, it, it isn't easy I think it's a it's an it's an important personal discipline to learn how to, to, how to understand we're all human beings and human beings your, your brain tries to solve things you know, quickly uh, and with less stress <clears throat> which is not necessarily how you get to the right answer most times so understanding you know, how to guard against that and, and having a process that you go through so that you're being as objective and, and insightfully, you know, analytic as you can, you go through it. But even, you know, with that kind of, those kind of disciplines that I've, you know, worked on developing, at the end of the day, there's still a healthy chunk of, I just think this is the right thing to do and we're going to make the bet. And emotionally, was there anything in particular that you remember from, you know, that time amongst you and your family was, was the day that you sold, you know, relieving, or was it almost um, kind of like you had, you're leaving something that you had spent so much time building? And then for somebody who enjoys outworking others so much, you know, then it's almost like a burden. Like, well, where do I put my efforts next? Yeah. So that was the hardest part. Was I? I sold the business. I I had agreed to uh, stay on for a year as the vice chairman and to and to be on their board. You know, but I I also knew, you know, that would, you know. A, I knew it would be difficult, and B, I knew I wasn't going to be one of those, you know, sold it and then bitch at them from the, the cheap seats. You know, I wasn't going to be that ass. And so, you know, I, I worked really hard for a year. Ultimately, they, you know, they asked me to stay for a second year, and I, so I stayed on the board for a couple years um, and, uh, and, and did everything I could. I, I, at that point when we sold, I had uh, 4,500 employees, so... You know, I had 4,500 people who didn't choose to be a part of Fiserv. They chose to be a part of CheckFree. I put them into Fiserv. Um, and so I, I felt a very strong moral obligation to do the best job I could do to make that company as successful as I could for them. Because, you know, a lot of them were, were shareholders. We, we had a very good um, uh, option program. But, you know, None of them got paid as well as I did, and so you know, and, and most of them needed to stay. So my job was to was to make the ongoing opportunity that they had there uh, as check free like as I could, and I did my very best to do that. But the, you know, for for a guy who prides himself in in you know absolute discipline, uh, and I just told you how analytic I was, and when I went through the decision of you know I I think this. Crisis is going to be much deeper than the normal cycles. I think it's going to put us in a position where, you know, we'll have lots of cash flow and not a very good stock price because the banks aren't going to be growing, but they're certainly not going to be building comp competitors to us, which means, 
you know, our business will be very sticky. You know, we'll continue to, to be very profitable, but we're not going to grow. So the stock market won't like us, you know, but we'll, our cash flow will go up. You know, we're a recipe for a, a PE firm coming in and buying us with our own cash. And I just wasn't interested in going through the machinations of playing with Wall Street to go through those games, that sort of thing. And, and uh, I, I, you know, I was very disciplined in the process I went through. All that said, after the deal was, was done, you know, for two weeks, uh, sort of out of the middle of nowhere, I would say more often than not, at some point, I would wake up in the middle of the night completely soaked in sweat. And I, I couldn't tell you why that happened. I didn't feel bad about it. I didn't, you know, consciously feel, I, consciously I felt good every time I asked myself, you know, would you do it again? Do you think you made a mistake? I've never looked back and think I made a, and think I made a mistake. I, I wish the crisis hadn't come. I wish we could have gone into the, the data analytics where we, you know, ultimately my goal and what we were working on at the time was a belief that the data that came with the payments consumers uh, were making was more valuable and ultimately would be more profitable than the fee we got for making the payment, uh, which is ultimately going to be true. Um, and we really thought we had a great uh, run on that. I wish I'd have had the chance to run that out, but I, I, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't. Uh, I, I still would have sold at the time I did. But you know, that said, we're we're all human beings. As tough as I think I am, um, you know, for a couple of weeks I would wake up in the middle of the night, and I don't mean sweating a little bit. I mean covered in sweat. And uh, it's you know, we're, we're all humans. And then where do you where do you spend your time now? And you know, what are your goals for yourself? Um, looking forward to the future. So uh, right now we, uh, my wife and I, split our time between. Uh, uh, Three residences. We have a, a house in uh, Arizona, uh, which is, is what we say that's where we pay taxes. is in is in Arizona. Uh, we have a ranch in Colorado, um, and then we have a house at the, one of the wineries in California. I, I spend about a third of my time in the wine business. You know, so we have two wineries in California, one in Australia, and we just acquired one in New Zealand. And so that takes up a. a bit of time. That, that was a hobby that sort of snuck up on me. I'm not a very good hobby guy. I have a tendency to overdo things, so you guys have probably figured out. And uh, so an, an interest in wine turned into four wineries around the world. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, business. Um, I have a, uh, about a third of my time I spend still working in fintech. I work with a venture capital firm out of California with uh, a, a guy who put that firm together. I helped him get it started and then he and I work together on projects that we invest in together. Um, and then I have uh, about a third of my time when I'm, I'm trying to work on uh, being retired. And my wife would tell you that I'm doing fine in the first two and I'm not doing very well on the third, but we're working on it. Absolutely, and I think Pete, that's a good place to pivot kind of towards our last question of the show. It focuses around uh, the theme of conquering Columbus, which is live uncomfortably. Uh, it's centered around an idea and a concept that I think really grew on us during wrestling, but uh, without telling you too much about what it means to us, what do you think of when you hear the phrase and, and how would you apply it to your life? So th this is actually an, uh, it's a, an interesting alignment because, you know, you know I don't do a lot of it uh, anymore, but when I, when I do speak to, you know, 
uh, venture capital uh, or entrepreneurial events. One of the things I focus on are the things that that uh, would-be, wannabe, or early entrepreneurs don't usually get a chance to hear, which are the tough things um, about, um, you know, what, what CEOs don't write about later, you know, because usually when CEOs have made it and they write about, you know, how they did it, um, you know, they don't want to write about the things that don't make them look great. And so they don't talk about how hard it was and mistakes they made and, and uh, difficulties they had. They talk about how smart they are. One of the things I think that is underplayed, and they always talk about how genius they were when they came up with this idea, and, and, and they act like they came up with the idea in its finished form. You know, not, you know, I guess there are those guys out there. You know, maybe Elon, you know, really did envision, you know, the, the, the Model 85, you know, in its completed form before. I, I happen to know that he didn't, but, you know, I'm sure there are guys out there that are smart, but not very many. You know, the vast majority of us started out with an idea. We iterated, you know, we iterated some more. We got some advice. We copied something, you know, a little bit of something from someone else. I mean, it's a, it's a long, hard process. and. And that's uh, one of the, my favorite sayings at Check Free for the majority of its life was our strategic plans are always written in pencil. Because if I allow them to get typed out, you'll start to think that they're real, and they're not. They're always under challenge. You're always looking for a way to improve. You're always looking at what we did wrong. And every strategic plan has a mistake in it somewhere. If it didn't the day it was written, it does 48 hours later, especially when you're talking about a business that's inventing you know, a whole new category. So um, the, you know, one of the things that, that I think people expect, and one of you guys mentioned it earlier, is you know, when you first made it big in the health club business, you know, didn't you sit back and, and uh, uh, and sort of take it easy and, and enjoy it. In fact, it's, a, it's both a strength and a, and a weakness. So w one of the things I believed in for, you know, from the beginning, as far as I knew, we're among the first that I know of that did 360-degree reviews. So it wasn't you know, ever that, uh, that just the boss uh, or the manager got to, got to review the uh, employee. The employee, the associate, got to review the manager because we're all trying to, to continuously improve. And if, you know, what, what better way to find out how a manager needs to improve than to hear you know, reactions from the people that that, that manager's supposed to be leading. And then in, in that process of, of going through that kind of thing, you, you find out uh, you know, that this is really hard. Hey, it's, you know, managing people is hard. Um, it's, it's a tough thing to do. And as, as we continue to go through that, you'd find managers that, that didn't really want to work that way. And you know, could could be great managers. You know, our our deal was, I don't care how great you are. The culture is a is is a value in a company that is as much as it's now written about today. It's still way undervalued. Um, it's 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 just tremendously important. And at the end of the day, the the person who's responsible for the culture in a business is the CEO. Um, and building a culture, building a right culture, is not easy. My brother will tell you it's easy if you just follow his, you know, his rules. You know, I, I, you know, I agree that he's he's got the right idea, but it is it is not easy. Um, and um, at the end of the day, you know, what I tell the leaders, the the companies that I advise, you know, that we invest in and advise, is the higher up you are in the organization, the fewer personal rights you have, and at the top, you have none. 
So understand, when you sign up to be an entrepreneur, you think it's going to be great and fun and you're going to get to celebrate. Your people might get to celebrate, you know, but you know, if, if you celebrate very long and, and the people believe that message, you know, then how hard are they working at, at what comes next and, and, a, and a willingness to take on the next challenge? So in that 360-degree review, every year, I'd get killed. I, I usually get, I, I, you know, I, I'm happy to say, uh, I usually get really positive feedback, you know, overall in general. But I mean consistently, uh, for 20 plus years, I'd get killed on the fact that I didn't celebrate with people as much as we should have celebrated our successes. And the truth is, you know, looking back, I should have celebrated more. But if you ask me which way, you know, I want to err. I want to err on the side of, you know what, if, if you think I'm too happy and, and we're celebrating a little bit too much, you might think, you know, for the next period of time that we've done enough and we haven't. So I just didn't want to, as soon as I start to celebrate, I'd feel guilty. I really should be making sure we plant the next flag further up. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, when, when you look back, um, it's, it's a bit like uh, athletics. Uh, you know, you look back at, there's nothing easy about, about training for the decathlon. There's nothing easy about training and wrestling. Wrestling practices are not fun. Um, they're, you know, they're full, there might be fulfillment in that. But when you look at the number of hours that you put into grinding for the amount of time you got the elation you know, from a pin or a win, you know, it, you know, it's a lot of hours of grinding for pretty small you know, short-term bursts of feedback, but that's who we are. When you're competitive, when you're driven to be competitive, you're, you're willing to, to put up with that. For people coming in, and, and I, I think athletics is a great uh, background for, uh, I, I learned way more out on the field than I did in the classroom in college, much as I, I enjoyed college. You know, but business is competitive, and people coming into it need to understand if, 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 you're, if you're coming into this because you think it's going to be really fun and, and, and exciting uh, and enjoyable, um, I, I think that's a mistake. You, know, you should come into it you know, w with the belief that you are ready to be uncomfortable. You're ready to be uncomfortable for a long period of time because if, if, if you're the entrepreneur and you're the one who's going to be driving the business, um, and your, your, your job is to drive the business. It's not to have fun. Uh, and look, you know, we, we get huge fulfillment out of athletics. I, I got nobody, I, I'm sure there are other people who got just as much fulfillment out of what they did as I did at a check free. But I can tell you, I don't think there's anybody who got more. You know, I got a huge amount of fulfillment out of check free. But it wasn't fun uh, uh, all along the way. It was mostly work. It was, and half the time I was scared to death. Scared that I had missed something. Scared that there was more I could have done. Scared that there's a point uh, earlier you'd mentioned about hiring people, and and as the business changed, how did I feel about that? And and to me, one of the weaknesses of entrepreneurs is they tend to not want to let go. They love to be in the center of attention. They loved it's it's a risk to let go, and let somebody else try something that you know you can do. But for, for me, all. You know, this wasn't something that I get credit for, you know, intellectually overcoming. From the first I could remember, I wanted Check Free to be successful. And if I could find someone who could do some part of it uh, better than me, or at least, you know, as good as me at, at, at first, 
you know, I loved finding people like that from day one. Uh, I loved, as soon as I could hire somebody like that, you know, as close to real enjoyment as I could get, that would be it. I would, I'd be going home that night thinking, I have one more person in that building during the day that's moving check-free forward as fast as, as I want it to be moved forward. And, and tomorrow, if I get another person, we're that much bigger with that much more resource. Those are the kind of fulfillment. That's fun to me, that kind of fulfillment in, in getting something like that done. I, I absolutely believe that if, if you wanted to put sort of three things underneath entrepreneurship as sort of defining characteristics you need to have to, to go into one, uh, uh, not just a willingness, a desire to live uncomfortably should be one of them. Well, Pete, I think that's a great answer to the question, and we really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with us today. Uh, Conquerors, thanks a lot for listening. That was Pete Kite, founder of Check Free, uh, with his story and experiences and talk about some of the challenges of being an entrepreneur. Hope you guys enjoy that episode. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, guys. If you guys enjoyed that episode, check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitchers, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And go ahead and click that subscribe button. It'll make sure you never miss another episode of Conquering Columbus. Before we let you go, we want to take one last moment to say thanks to all of our incredible sponsors one more time. Conquering Columbus is brought to you in part by the Sundown Group. The Sundown Group is an Ohio-based nonprofit that helps connect entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, talent, and capital through business pitch events, workshops, and classes offered throughout the state. And for more information, head on over to sundownfirst.org. And our last sponsor is Facilities Management Express, or FMX for short. FMX is actually founded and headquartered here in Columbus, Ohio. They're a startup software company. What's really cool about them, there's a lot of competitors in this space, but they made a name for themselves by designing an easy-to-use and tailored-fit facilities maintenance and management software. They serve industries ranging from churches and schools to property management, manufacturing, and fast casual restaurants. You can learn more or check out a free trial at gofmx.com. You could drop me anywhere on the planet in any environment, and I might get you know, my head kicked in in the beginning, but I'll find a way to survive. I'll find a way to get the job done. Yeah, there's a little doubt, but you know what? Once again, I think of that guy in my ear. I think about stepping up to the stage. I think about the challenge. Like, I've lost sometimes, but I've won more than I've lost. And so, like, I bet on me any day. Choosing greatness. Greatness doesn't choose you. You know, you have to choose it. And, yeah, it's hard. I think there was a hunger in me. There was a desire just to make a difference. There was a desire to not just be status quo, a desire to not be average. This is Conquering Columbus.